Hey y'all, it's Janice here, aka J Nice on the mic, and this is Dirty Diversity, a podcast on all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. This podcast is called Dirty Diversity because in this day and age, diversity has become sort of a dirty or bad word that causes a lot of knee-jerk and negative reactions. The goal of this podcast is to dissect diversity, or lack thereof, inside and outside of companies, and also to discuss current events around equity and inclusion, as well as discussing solutions for creating a more cohesive world and workplace. My name is Janice, aka J Nice on the mic. <laughs> that was and still is my moniker on YouTube. Some of you may know I started a YouTube channel almost 10 years ago to discuss topics around race and black identity, and it seemed to really resonate with my audience. I'm also a TEDx speaker, a professor, a diversity and inclusion consultant, and a writer with a PhD in organizational psychology. Welcome to Dirty Diversity, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy to have you here with me. Hey y'all, Jay Nice on the mic with episode four of Dirty Diversity. Thank you all so much for your continued listenership. I really, really do appreciate it. So the first thing that I wanted to do tonight is to read a review. I'm really excited that I, <laughs> it sounds like laughable to the larger podcasters, but to me, Every review that you all take the time to write means so much to me. I wanted to read a review from Ride a Lambo who said, even though there are a handful of diversity podcasts, Dr. Janice is who you want to hear for the real deal. The many Forbes articles we are lucky to receive as she contributes can now be heard through her voice. Taking the words from the internet to the audio sphere, I am three episodes in and have not been disappointed. I expect to be kept sharp on the latest in DNI while I keep my mind open to the listening and learning experience. Thank you so much to Ride a Lambo. <laughs> I um I know who that is based on your Instagram, but thank you so much for that review. I really appreciate it and I uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. So today's episode is called Why Do Your Unconscious Bias Trainings Keep Failing? I wrote an article of the same name or a similar name. I've written so many articles that it's hard for me to keep track of like the exact titles, but if you're interested in learning more about unconscious bias training and why they tend to fail, I have left the link to the article in the show notes. So another thing that I wanted to share with you all before we get into the episode is, for those of you who do not know, I started last year actually, um, almost a year ago, or I guess over a year ago, February 20th of 2019, I started something called the Diversity Dinner Dialogue, which is basically like an informal event where I bring people together, I invite them to come, it's a free event, it's sponsored by Papa John's. And um, people come and just, we talk about different topics. Um, One of the suggestions I received is that it's nice 
that the diversity dinner dialogue focuses on one specific topic. So each uh, diversity dinner dialogue is on something different. I did one, a friend of mine and I co-facilitated a diversity dinner dialogue this past Thursday. And the topic was on intersectionality. And I just wanted to let you all know, for those of you in the New York City area, I am hosting another diversity dinner dialogue on Thursday, March 19th. More details about that event can be found in the show notes. And uh, you can click the link to get your free ticket. So why do your unconscious bias trainings keep failing? Well, I think unconscious bias trainings have been around for a while now. But within the last few years, they have become more popularized just because of different companies. Starbucks in 2018, April of 2018, Starbucks was in head, uh, made headlines because two black men in a Philadelphia Starbucks were kicked out for, they were racially profiled and then the manager called the police on them because they didn't, allegedly they didn't buy anything from the store. And after that whole incident happened, Starbucks got a lot of backlash and the uh, they put out a statement basically saying that they apologized and that they would uh, they would institute a um, an unconscious bias training. So they closed down their US locations um, and they did an unconscious bias training, but I was really interested in seeing people's opinions because I had mine and I just thought, well, a four-hour unconscious bias training isn't really going to change the culture of the organization if the systemic issues are still able to permeate. So I think with that incident and then last year, Sephora found itself in hot water when um, a singer by the name of SZA, she went into a Sephora in Calabasas, California, and she said that the security guards were following her. So she was also racially profiled. So Sephora did, you know, they took a page out of Starbucks's book and they closed down their stores within the US and they did this unconscious bias training. Again, I think unconscious bias trainings without any other methods is going to be ineffective. And I, I'm sure there everyone else uh, listening to this would agree with me. Um, so we're going to go into some detail on why specifically unconscious bias trainings fail. If you read the articles after this whole Starbucks incident and when they announced that they were doing the unconscious bias trainings, I was just following what was going on on LinkedIn. And it seemed like the general consensus was that a four-hour unconscious bias training is not going to um, change the systemic issues within the organization. And that's what we're going to talk about. Why? What are some reasons are why your unconscious bias trainings or just bias trainings in general are failing or will continue to fail? So again, I wrote an article about this, which can be found in the show notes. So unconscious bias trainings don't account for the structural and systemic issues that allow bias to perpetuate and permeate within the organization. So before you implement an unconscious bias training into your workplace, 
Um, if you're thinking about doing an unconscious bias workshop where you hire someone like me or another external consultant to implement the training, I would encourage you to listen to this episode. If you know any leaders who are about to implement an unconscious bias training, send them this episode or send them the article I wrote of the same name. So the first reason why your unconscious bias trainings are doomed to fail is because you are instituting them in an organization that has an exclusive or hostile work environment. So if the organization fosters hostile behaviors and doesn't address, excuse me, microaggressions, then you're un- no matter how many unconscious bias trainings you implement, it's not going to be effective. So you have to figure out how you are going to address the hostile work environment and microaggressions. You want to think about what systems are in place within your organization to address um, hostile behaviors and microaggressions. Your employees should understand what microaggressions are. I know I told this story before, but I did a microaggressions um, uh, workshop for at a particular conference recently, and there were about 50 people in the room, and I asked the audience how many of them knew what an, a microaggression was, and maybe five people raised their hands. So a very small percentage of that room even knew what a microaggression was. So in order to understand how to address something, you have to first understand what it is. So making sure that within your diversity training, microaggressions is something that is addressed, that's really, really important. And then you have to have a system in place to figure out how to deal with microaggressive behaviors. The the tricky thing about microaggressions is that they're not always visible and you often can't prove them. So you can't prove that someone gave you a dirty look or someone spoke to you in a manner that you found to be rude or that somebody, you know, said something to you that you that you thought was inappropriate. Sometimes it seems benign on the surface, um, but over time, those microaggressive behaviors can build up and can definitely have negative impacts on the employee who's experiencing them. And then also on the other, their coworkers, if they witness these microaggressive behaviors um, taking place. So as a manager, managers should definitely have systems in place to recognize, that's the important part, and then deal with microaggressive behavior. So assess the organizational climate. Um, think about, you know, do you have high turnover? Is there high turnover for employees of color? And if there is, then you really want to assess exit interview data. I think exit interview data period should be assessed for any diversity professional. As a DNI consultant, I often don't get a look at um, exit interview data. That's usually HR within the organization, but I would encourage you to, if you're a manager or you're somebody who you know, wants to figure out how you can um, use the information in the exit interview data, I would reach out to HR 
Um, but I, I do know a lot of companies have restrictions as far as like what HR can actually share with you. But that can give you an understanding and an idea of the work environment within the organization. So you want to make sure that you have a system in place to address microaggressive behaviors. So the second reason why your unconscious bias trainings are not effective is something called the similar to me bias. So if the similar to me bias is not addressed in hiring and selection, then your unconscious bias trainings are going to be largely ineffective. So you want to think about things like how diverse is my search committee or my selection committee? Is my Hiring, if is my group of hiring managers, uh, do they consist of a homogenous group or is it people from different backgrounds? Um, also assess where you are actually recruiting from. If you're recruiting from the same universities, the same colleges, then you're going to get the same pool of applicants. So this isn't problematic unless your company is having issues with attracting um, or recruiting, uh, for example, women or people of color or um, differently abled people or veterans or, you know, whatever group you're specifically trying to increase. Um, so you want to assess where you're recruiting from. Um, I would also look at what percentage of your hires are recruited internally versus through networks versus through blind hiring. Um, I saw a statistic, and I'm going to leave it in the show notes, that said 70% of jobs are now filled through networking. And what that means is that, you know, we're filling most of the jobs within our organizations based on who people know. And just obviously, just based on the similar to me bias, I as a black woman are more likely to have black other black women within my circle of friends. If any of you listening to this are a white male, for example, you're more likely to have white males in your circle of friends just based on the research. So you want to make sure that you're widening the pool uh, of where applicants are recruited from. Um, and you want to ensure that you are looking in more diverse places than where you normally look if you have an issue with attracting diverse candidates. Um, so sometimes I hear managers saying, oh, it's a pipeline issue. We're not able to find people of color, for example. But if you're recruiting from the same pools and the same schools and the same places, of course you're going to get a homogenous group of applicants. Um, the effect of having a homogenous group of employees seeps into not only, you know, and, and impacts not only the hiring and selection process, but can also impact the employee appraisal process and the promotion process. If you're not able to hire a diverse set of candidates, you will have a homogenous group of people working within an organization. If the people assessing who should get the promotion are a homogenous group of people, that just increases the likelihood for bias uh, to sort of seep into the process. Um, diverse employees have an increased chance of being discriminated against when they work in a more homogenous company. So um, making sure or making a more um, concerted effort to hire people who are diverse can create more objectivity, um, when it comes to performance appraisals and promotion. So um, addressing the similar to me bias in hiring and selection is critical. 
So the last reason why your unconscious bias trainings keep failing is because your company is not addressing white privilege. Um, So what is white privilege? White privilege could be thought of or um, understood to be the unearned advantages and opportunities that are awarded to people with white skin. (laughs) And uh, until you address that within an organization and understand how it seeps into the decision-making process, your unconscious bias trainings are going to be largely ineffective. White is the default So anything that deviates from the default is going to be seen as abnormal and an aberration. So if your unconscious bias training doesn't explain how white privilege permeates into um, so many aspects of our lives inside of the workplace and outside of the workplace, then you're doing your employees a disservice and your bias trainings and unconscious bias trainings in particular are going to continue to be ineffective. And I get it. You might be listening to this and saying, well, when you bring up white privilege, privilege, excuse me, people get defensive. And you're absolutely right. Um, I understand why white privilege is not discussed um, because just the suggestion of it uh, can make people really defensive. And I'm thinking back to, um, if any of you have watched, Chelsea Handler has a documentary called, I think it's just called White Privilege um, or something along those lines on Netflix. It was released at the end of last year, maybe October or November. And um, in the documentary, there's a scene where Chelsea is talking to a group of white women from Orange County, California. And she's asking them if they understand what white privilege is and how it manifests. And the women are, to me, my perception was they seemed a little bit defensive. Um... So one of the women made the claim that people of color enjoy unearned privilege as well. And then she even went as far as to make the suggestion that affirmative action is one of the ways that people of color have unearned privilege. And so I was teaching last semester, I was teaching a diversity and inclusion course, and we were on the topic of race. And I showed my students a clip Uh, that particular clip. And I had to fact check the woman in the clip because she was just factually inaccurate. Um, Little known fact is that white women actually benefit the most from affirmative action programs, even though the perception is that black people um, are the ones who receive affirmative action or people of color are getting these unearned privileges. In actuality, white women are the ones that benefit the most from affirmative action. So that was just, you know, incorrect, um, that statement that was made in that documentary. Um, I just wish Chelsea Handler had sort of um, doubled down a little bit and, and addressed some of the inaccuracies that were said by that group of women. Um, she did kind of bring certain things up, but I, I felt like she could have went a little bit harder. But um, so that's just an example of how uh, people do get defensive. People who are white often get defensive when you bring up white privilege. Um, and bringing someone in to enlighten your workplace about white privilege and how it permeates the workplace can be effective. 
you just have to think about how you want to go about doing that. And honestly, it's like whether your organization is ready for that discussion. And as a manager or somebody within the organization, you know better than an outsider what your employees are ready for. In some workplaces, I mean, unfortunately, the reality of the situation is that they're not ready to have the white privileged conversation. But it's important to understand that your unconscious bias trainings are not going to be effective until you address white privilege. If you're looking for some alternative ways to address it, I would encourage you to read or listen to audiobooks such as, I know I mentioned this before, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And so I would encourage employees to read that book. Um, I listened to the audiobook version um, on the go and it was great. But um, I would, if you're looking for alternatives, or send employees articles where white privilege is addressed. I've written articles on white privilege, and I can leave that in the show notes for you if you want to check it out or send to your manager or your employees. Um, so again, until you uh, until you address white privilege, your unconscious bias trainings will fail. Um, and non-white people can also, it's important to just make this Um, statement. So non-white people can also uphold oppressive systems and can internalize biased views about our own people as well. Um, So quick, uh, quick, uh, just, I guess you want to say story or quick mention of some research. Um, There was a study by, and I'm forgetting the name, it was a social, uh, social psychology study. Um, And in this study, Um, It looked at black and white police officers, and they showed them images of white people with and without weapons and black people with and without weapons. And unsurprisingly, the white officers were faster to shoot black people without weapons than they were to shoot white people with weapons. But interestingly enough, the same was also true for the black officers. So the black officers were faster to shoot black people with no weapon than they were white people with a weapon. And I can leave that study in the show notes if you all want to read more, but it's it's you know, it's important to also recognize that the culture of white privilege has permeated permeates beyond just white people. Uh people of color can also uphold Um, systems of inequity as well. So that's why it's just so important that your company is addressing white privilege and that employees understand what white privilege actually is. Unpacking and undoing um, unfair and inequitable systems perpetuated by white privilege is critical and crucial um, if you want to improve your workplace relations and also if you want your unconscious bias trainings to be effective. So that concludes episode four. Again, all of the studies and research and info that I mentioned is in the show notes. Um, If you want to connect with me, a link to my LinkedIn and my Instagram is also in the show notes. I'm on there the most. I have a Facebook, but I never get on. Um, And all the other social media I don't really use. So if you are on Instagram or LinkedIn, I would encourage you to connect. I love to have or continue rather the conversation there. 
Thank you all so much for listening to episode four of Dirty Diversity. I will chat with you all in the next episode.